Welcome to the first season of the Coffee Chronicles, brought to you by the Black Six Coffee Trading Company. The Black Six Coffee Trading Company is a New York City-based coffee company that funds its own humanitarian aid organization called the Black Six Project. In this podcast, we get to hear interesting stories and cover different topics over a cup of coffee. Our network consists of a wide variety of military veterans, first responders, healthcare workers, and entrepreneurs. In the past few months, a pandemic caused by the COVID-19 virus has affected many lives around the world. Being based in New York City, we are currently facing the highest amount of infections and deaths due to this virus. In the first season, you're going to tell the stories of different people that are affected by this pandemic. My name is Joseph Zaleta, founder of the Black Six Coffee Trading Company. I'm a Marine Corps veteran and a New York City paramedic, and I had the privilege to meet the most interesting people because of our work in Black Six. Thank you for tuning in to the second episode of the Coffee Chronicles on our season one debut. Today we're going to be interviewing a fellow paramedic friend of mine, Jose Pinero, who works with me as well as a few other places and just wanted to share his experience with COVID-19 as it emerged in Long Island and now it's affected EMS operations around New York City and Long Island. Uh, Jose's been a long time paramedic and a mentor of mine as I've been uh, pursuing my EMS career and has given me a lot of insight on how to take care of patients as well as run a department. So hope you get to uh, take something away from this interview with Jose Pinero. What's up everyone, this is Joseph Zaleta here from Black Six Coffee and I am here with paramedic Jose Pinero. What's up Jose? Hey, good morning, how you doing Joe? How's everything? Good, good. Jose has been a friend of mine since I think 2009 or 10? 10, probably 2010. 2010, I know. Yeah. You're just trying to uh, know me a little bit more or less by saying 10 instead of 9. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you drinking this morning? Well, this morning. Uh, I'm working early shift, so went to Dunkin' Donuts, got my uh, medium coffee, light and sweet with milk, and uh, enjoying that, that little sip right there. All right, you know, uh, I'm not hating on that. I was a Dunkin' Donuts fan before. That's, that's the only thing I had open right now. Yeah, so I was about to say, that's the only thing available. I had no choices, <laughs> put it that way. So this morning, I am having uh, a latte uh, from my uh, brand. Uh, it's the one save, and I made it with whole milk. And I'm fortunate enough to have an espresso machine at home that we took home from the cafe. Very jealous, Joe. Yeah. Up. So, you know, we've been knowing each other since 2010. Uh, you want to give a little background on how we met? Absolutely. Uh, we had a common friend that I was partners with uh, working out in the field as paramedics. And we had a class, uh, must be some CME class we had. And he said, uh, you got to meet this guy. He's a great guy, uh, veteran. He's in paramedic school. You definitely need to uh, work with him. And we briefly 
coincidentally, he was talking about that the day before, and we uh, met the next day and unplanned, and we hit it off. We hit it off right away. And it was uh, it was good. It was a good uh, dealing with you. It was, it was a yeah. great day. So yeah, Jose hired me in one of my first paramedic jobs when I started my career, and still here with him. Uh, great friend outside of work also, and you know he's always here for you. And vice versa, anything you ever need, you know, Jose, I'm here for you. Correct. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so now it is June, right? So we are out in Long Island, outside uh, New York City. You know, one of the bordering areas around the most uh, highest, highest infected areas in the United States. So, uh, you know, when COVID hit, it, you know, like, could you tell me, how was your uh, mindset when you know first heard of COVID? Unprepared, totally unprepared. I've heard of other illnesses and uh, diseases out there, especially in the line in this line of work we do. And started hearing this about, I believe, like early January, international what happened out in, in Asia, and kept up on it, discussing with other partners and everything. And next thing you know, it's uh, February. It's in the west coast of uh, the United States, and I believe it was Oregon was one of the first areas. And we're still here. We're like, okay, it won't come over here. Lo and behold, <laughs> we started getting hit here in uh, probably early March. We mm -hmm. started getting more uh, prevalent in the east coast, New York City area and New Jersey area. And unprepared, uh, I would say a little bit. Because uh, the biggest challenge was it was the unknown. It rapidly evolved so quick. I'd never seen so anything evolve so quickly in in my career. And the hospitals got inundated right away. It, the media was just showing all these reports, and we were living it. We were just living it. It was it was scary in the beginning, but like I said, it was the, the unknown. And the way we had to protect ourselves it was un it was unbelievable. We we studied this in back in EMT one hundred one classes mm -hmm. and yeah you know wear gloves and goggles and things like that but this was beyond family members were scared uh, people out there were just it was so quickly evolved that's that's why it hit me so hard that way yes uh, you're also a EMT instructor and a paramedic instructor correct? yes I am yes, yeah I so am. you know that is definitely what EMT one hundred one that is. Would you say one of the first steps we always take in that our is scenarios? The, that is the first thing we we teach to the EMT students, and we re we uh, we teach that again as a paramedic student. Um, scene safety, safety for yourself, and part of that safety is uh, PPE, personal protective uh, equipment. And you go in there, and um, this is it was so. Like I said, I keep on repeating that was so quick that supplies out there, the vendors was just they didn't, they couldn't keep up with it. Yeah, they could not keep up with it, and we had to practice what we preach quickly. We always protect ourselves. Don't get us wrong um, with gloves, but gowns. You know, you know what the gowns, the goggles, the face shields, the N95 masks. Yeah, the gowns were pretty much something. We were only thought about when we were doing uh, probably a birth. Yes, birth is the only thing isolation gowns we had. It was birth because, uh, I don't know, 
the way the natural birth comes out is just it's a lot of fluid and everything. You got to protect yourself, protect the patient. But uh, not a normal basis. Every call we're going to, every run, it's just gowned up, gowned up everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, with the N95 mask, it's very uh, restrictive. So some some uh, field workers, hospital workers, just we're not used to that. Yeah. So you we you're used to uh, ordering supplies correct for your EMS agency. Uh, how how did how quickly did it change on uh, like what you were ordering and how much you were ordering? It changed as quick as this came came about. Uh, I was being proactive as soon as I was reading things. I said, "All right, let me start looking at our present supplies." We had enough supplies to meet the demand for about a week, depending on the call volume. When I started reaching out to my vendors, uh, they had none. There were back orders of so, you know three weeks four weeks, six weeks, and I kept on going to other vendors. I was, I was on the phone, on the on the computers, emailing back and forth different vendors, vendors I never even heard of that I was getting just um, heads up on. And they were very uh, obliging, but it was all backwards. They were in a, in, in a rut for themselves. Mm-hmm. At what point did you start thinking, hey, we, we're probably going to run out short, and then... You might have to reuse some of the PPE. Was that something that was realistic or was like, oh, no, there's no way we can do this. We have to like throw out each PPE. Uh, in the beginning, I think the second week of March, uh, I did have a nice, good, ample supply for about two weeks of high-volume calls, I'd say, a week and a half. And luckily, since I was ahead of the curve a little bit, I did get quick supplies from a couple of vendors local. On Long Island, I, I I personally went to pick up uh, a few a couple hundred here and there, like uh, N95 masks, surgical masks for the patient. That we never put surgical masks on the patient unless they have a flu-like symptoms, and it was rare. People don't call for the flu to be transported 911. Mm-hmm. But um, I I started thinking I was like, wow, let me email my staff to. Uh, Use them sparingly. Uh, I was listening to hospitals saying they had to use them for one week straight. I believe that we never had that issue here. Uh, luckily, I know we used uh, unless it got really soiled mm-hmm. and dirty, or uh, then we re- we changed it up. But uh, we were pretty good with supplies, luckily here. Mm-hmm. Now, what uh, what protocols or procedures do we uh, have to put in place? Uh, in your agency to sort of uh, limit exposure and create less of a danger in uh, infecting uh, fellow firefighters or, or EMS personnel. Right. Um, right away, we got together with uh, the bosses here in the agency. We had immediate uh, meetings every day of, of ever-changing. Every day was changing procedures and, and, and what symptoms to look out for. First, it was limited symptoms, you know, people that traveled from outside certain regions and they just started, uh, you know, it was, it was crazy. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, procedure we changed, we started with dispatching, screening the phone calls. Mm-hmm. And uh, I created an SOG writing down what questions they should ask, uh, you know, what symptoms, did they travel, whether from any exposure issues they think they may have. And that was related to the cruise. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, change. Okay, you know, 
not only fevers and travel from, from Asia, it was traveling from outside areas and with GI issues and fevers. Mm-hmm. And it just evolved every day. So every day we're meeting and what procedures uh, to put in place. It was every day was changing. Um, they were mostly dispatcher and then we're going there already with mindset of self-care. We got a gown up, goggles, and it was true. Every time we went to a call, it was, it, it was a, a PUI, which was the potential a patient under investigation for pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the hospital was getting inundated big time. So it was a huge turnaround. The, the other thing I want to add is that um, we were cleaning our ambulances every call. We usually do on a normal basis, but this was a deep cleaning. So usually it was like an hour, an hour and a half turnaround after transporting a, a pandemic, a potential pandemic patient. So um, we the safety is first for our, for our staff, for the firefighters, the EMS personnel that we have here. So it started off from the dispatching, like I said. And I was communicating with the staff every day, two or three emails a day, uh, making copies and, and uh, posting all the uh, CDC guidelines that was changing every day to keep the staff updated on what's going on. Now, do you remember the first time you had a confirmed, a confirmed COVID patient as a transport? Absolutely. So mm-hmm. I remember the date and everything. And... I remember the patient totally. Uh, my partner and I went. It was. Uh, oh, so you had the first? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. The, we had the first, uh, my partner and I, and that it was one during the daytime. It was a day tour. Mm-hmm. We uh, went to shore, no travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Where dispatcher did... said it was the, the only thing that we said was it an inkling of anything? It was fever, mm-hmm. fever like symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, patient was didn't travel. Mm-hmm. We got there, we were gowned up already, precautionary, and as soon as we went in there, temperature taken and so forth, we, we got in there. I mean, they had problems breathing, mm-hmm. the saturation levels was low, <coughs> so we called up the hospital, local hospital we, we transferred to, and as soon as I walked to the hospital, it was backed up with all these patients of pandemic possible possibilities. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it hit me right there and then. I go, I think this is going to be real serious. Mm-hmm. And that evening, that overnight shift, they had three of them more. Wow. Back, so to within, back to back. So within almost one, 24 hours, you had four confirmed. We had five. Five. Wow. Five. It, oh, was, yeah. it was one, our first one, and then three. And then the next morning's crew had one right off the bat. Wow. And they all came in different um, nature of illnesses. Uh-huh. But all the, all the thing they had come was uh, fever-like symptoms. Mm-hmm. And none of them were from traveling, mm-hmm. so that's when right away CD, we were saying, okay, this is not just a, people traveling; it's something that, that exposed some mm-hmm. unknown things. <clears throat> How did the attitude change of the uh, you know the EMS staff after you know you came back saying, all right, we we had our first confirmed uh, COVID patient? Fear and um, resiliency. I know. We go through a lot. We see a lot. A lot of us that are working in this, in this agency have 15, 20, 25 years of experience. Um, I saw fear in voices, in, in body language, but they dove right into it. Every single staff member. I uh, never had an issue of pick up tours because they wanted to help. 
they uh, as long as we had the protection protective per, uh, personal protective equipment, they they dove in and they were communicating with me at all times. I was listening to the radios twenty four seven. Just know, just make sure as soon as um, those calls were coming in, like consecutively, I was on top of our PP supplies, what was used, make sure things were right on top. So, mm -hmm. and we, we uh, there was also was there an implementation of like keeping track of any sick personnel? Yes, uh, mm -hmm. we also another thing that was that we never did before. Um, exposure issues so I was writing exposure reports on every little little call we had every run we had for any any patient which now nine out of ten patients was potential mm -hmm. pandemic and um, I wrote exposure reports for all of them each individual just in case that got sick we start taking temperatures of each step of each staff member uh, to make sure to uh, if they were asymptomatic but with fevers we would send them home um, and, you know, staff of about 30 or so, four did get exposed, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, thankfully, they all recovered, and, but we didn't miss a beat. But uh, we're always on top of it. I was always emailing, texting, showing up, calling up, make sure they were feeling okay. After every call, practically, after every tour, to make sure they were okay. Mm -hmm. Would you say, you know, this came in March. Was there a good, like, chance that, we missed something in February. Like I believe all, so. We were only aware about it more in March. For I believe chances. so. I, I personally believe so. I think everyone was concentrated on the West Coast, for Asian countries going to the West Coast. And I believe, um, not getting politics involved, European countries, people started just still traveling normally in February, early February. And... They were coming into the airports, Newark, uh, Kennedy Airport, all, all the airports in the New York City area. And no one was monitoring them. No one knew. Yeah. And, and that's how one exposure led to the other exposure. And then it just came on rampant. It was so quick. So, did, yes, did we miss something? I, I believe so. Yeah, that's probably so. why I think uh, those patients that you spoke about had no history of travel. No history of travel whatsoever. As I recall, those first three days, the first day was like four, I think it was five. The next two or three days, it was like 12 of them that we transported. Reading all the patient care reports, and because I do the QAQI as well for the agency, and exposure reports, um, none of them traveled. None mm -hmm. of them. So they were exposed either at work, family. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was unreal. The tracing... We couldn't do any tracing back then. I think it's, no, it's didn't too exist. late. Way too late already. Yeah, there's so. too many, too much contact between the population and everybody. Now, when you like responded to these calls, like, well, how did the patient sort of uh, think? Did they think they were infected? There was denial in the beginning. I think mm -hmm. there was denial. They were sick and uh, couldn't breathe. Some had GI issues, headaches, dizziness. Some, some of them. Most of them were elder, elderly, you know, I'd say 70 plus in the beginning. That changed within a few weeks at the age. Um, but they were denial, not recognizing what it could be because everything was like, oh, you really traveled outside the U.S. Or, or cruise ships. 
you were potentially exposed, but none of them. So they were like denial or thinking it was something else. But with the fevers of going 100 to 102 degrees and um, the, 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 the breathing was the biggest thing I saw. Would you say it was also different in how it presented itself? Because we're hearing, you know, the cases of uh, people having low oxygen saturation on the pulse oximeter, but their, you know, mental status has been pretty good still for what we've normally seen. What we've learned in textbooks, you know, any oxygen saturation level like 92, 91%, 90%, they have ultimate mental status. High 80s, I used to see high 80s, they were ultimate status. What amazed my partner and I when we saw this, they were in the 70s, 60s. I saw 58% saturation, and they were maintaining. They were walking around. They were looking at me, and we couldn't believe. We thought it was sometimes equipment malfunction. Mm -hmm. We will double check, and we're like, no, they're it's they're 65%, but they're maintaining. Mm -hmm. Do so, they have shortness of breath too? They have shortness of breath. Some of them mm -hmm. upon exertion, upon mm -hmm. walking around. Uh. I know one. Female patient was just sitting down. She had 81 percent, 79 to 81 percent, no diff breathing. The only thing she has GI issues. I I remember uh, reading somewhere you just have the patient walk around for a minute or two and see how they they. But she didn't want to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. As soon as she started walking around a few steps, shortness of breath, work of breathing mm -hmm. was visible. Saturation went down to like 60s. So. You know, it was apparent, and we, we convinced her to go to the hospital. She was in bad shape. Mm -hmm. Did and that sort of, like, change your mentality or style of treatment of these patients then? You know, 60s and altered mental status, we would normally, like, intubate them. Correct. And I was so much, it's a good thing you brought that up, Joe, because um, every day we were getting new guidelines from the New York State, from CDC, from regional... Um, Protocols changing actually. Uh, um, they were called guidelines and advisories. They were saying do not intubate until last resort because if they would, if they would get intubated, they'll never get off the ventilation. They were finding out research uh, from from Italy, from um, from China. So definitely our treatment was we were aggressive about it, but we didn't intubate at all. Actually, as I recall, I didn't intubate any patient. We, use, we did change, put high con oxygen with a non-rebreather and also nasal cannula at the same time. Then came another week later that we could transport them prone. Yeah, prone laying, meaning laying face down, body. which we learned in school, never transport anybody face down. Yeah, you'd want to monitor their airway all the time. Absolutely, and this was something that was working, I believe, out in, in Italy. They were finding out in Italy and I forgot what other country, Spain. Mm -hmm. They are putting patients on their on prone level, which is face down, actually helped them. Yeah, uh, so they, a lot of these were getting double pneumonia, mm -hmm. double pneumonia bilaterally, and um, it was helping. I, I transported two patients that way with the nasal cannula and the non-rebreather oxygen administration, and it actually it helped them breathe better. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And I would also say when the, these protocols to sort of avoid intubating a patient were not really uh, to just for the good of the patient, but something different that we saw was that it was also for the good of the provider. Provider, correct. That was, that was 
this the guidelines were actually looking out for the health of the uh, providers. They wanted to protect us because we intubators missed this fluids uh, in the air, getting uh, contaminated more, more exposure issues, mm -hmm. and they wanted to protect us first. So which was very uh, different than our, our ways of working, but it, we we were we were protected. Now another thing that we've been seeing and one of the changes that uh, we've experienced also is that we transport a patient but we can't have a family member go with us and then also in the hospital like how, how's that you know affected some of the calls that you've been on a good point Joe, to point that out um, we're taught as paramedics uh, to have empathy and one of those empathy factors we have is family members uh, loved ones of the patient at times if possible we have the family member go along with us to the uh, in the ambulance to the hospital for the because one the patient will be more comfortable and secondly family members know they're being treated well during this pandemic uh, it was very strict no family members were allowed uh, in hospitals at all so you got sick it could be a 20 year old 30 year old 40 year old you, you're by yourself no families were allowed in the ER and the same as in the ambulance. So family members were not allowed to go in the ambulance during transport to uh, limit exposure. That's that's the bottom line. Limit exposure of uh, the, the person, the crew, and so forth. It was very hard seeing people because sometimes, and I know as a fact, it was the last time they won't see a family member being driven away from the from the call. Yeah, and you probably didn't even, you don't get the chance to say the goodbye no that you wanted you know no. they were just sick and it's probably yeah, definitely the last time you might see them yeah we started realizing that after a few runs and um people were talking about it that that's the last time they would see these family members and uh in the hospital i know a lot of the, my friends who are you know doctors pas rns they would uh facetime if possible with their loved ones as much as possible on a pad ipad and phone just to say the goodbyes just to see how they're doing and that's it, but remotely. Very, very tough. Because um, as much as you have a patient, you also want to take care of the family members. That's what we taught us was inbred in us. It was hard. It was challenging. Not, not easy. Let me tell you this whole thing. Yeah. So we're now in June. Uh, a lot of New York is starting to open back up. You know, and with people getting a little tired of uh, quarantine, social distancing, um, I'm sure people have broken those kind of uh, quarantine rules ahead of time. Do, what's your opinion about uh, a second wave, or or do you expect to have one, or you think we've done enough already that we don't expect a second wave? Bottom line, I'm hoping for the best, preparing for the worst. Uh, I think that they should, there will be an, a, a second wave, as everyone says. I'm hoping not, but um, a lot of people are. Like you mentioned, they, they were tired of being quarantined for like eight weeks, ten weeks. They're out and about now. There's different phases that New York State is opening up in the nation. And I see people out there being careless, you know, um, all ages. Not just young people, teenagers, but people in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Because um, it's human nature. You want to socialize. And yes, I do. Mm -hmm. People, I see people being protected with the, you know, the face masks, coverage of the face. But face but um, I see a lot of people being 
letting the guard down, thinking it's over. And that's what we're afraid of, that the second wave is going to hit. Are we prepared? Better prepared than we were back in February, March. Absolutely we are. What do you think you're going to do now in uh, anticipation of a uh, second wave? Still screening phone calls uh, in 911 side. Uh, dispatchers are up on alert. We have OPPE, uh, at least a 90-day supply we're supposed to have as per DOH and as per CDC guidelines. So we're definitely very prepared for the on the PPE side. Uh, we prepared as well as what kind of calls we're getting, what we're seeing. Um, but it's still new. We don't know how this second wave, how it's going to hit. It's going to be it's going to be worse, the same, uh, less you know symptoms. It'll be younger people. Okay, I mean, right now we see what's going on all over the nation with, with protests. And I'm afraid, you know, a lot of us in the crew here are afraid that people will be careless with, with um, being in the crowd, large crowds of 50, 100, 100 200 people. And it's going to spike up these numbers. Um, but let's see, I'm just hoping for the best. Okay, I don't even know what to answer. We don't know what, what's going to happen. Yeah. Also, being a, as an EMS educator, uh, I know you're very passionate about sharing your experience and knowledge to uh, the future of EMS. Yes. What do you think uh, will will change as far as uh, what you want to pass on and learning from this? Well, I always tell you when I start teaching young young uh, prospective EMT students and paramedic students, you got to love people. That's bottom line. If uh, any healthcare worker, any first responder, you got to love people. You're there to serve. You're there not for the prestige, the, the, the money, not absolutely not. You're there because you care for the people. And I tell the young people where is new into this business, be ready, get educated, keep reading on your research, the newest guidelines, and protect yourself and your, and your partner. Safety is always first. If you're not being safe at all, uh, you're not, you're no help in, in treating a patient whatsoever. But... Um, it's something that I'm pres- it's ne- like nation never seen before. It's the new norm. We don't know what the new norm is going to be mm-hmm. at all. Um, we we'll shall see in these com- upcoming months and years until some vaccine is developed. We have to be on our toes and being proactive rather than reactive. Yes, I totally agree. Um, now, how many years have you been uh, in EMS? Uh, I've been going, this is my 26th year. Twenty six years. Yeah, believe it or not. Thanks. Make me feel old. I don't think um, we have like there's some EMS people that we know that aren't even twenty six years old. We yet. have some people on staff here that I mean are twenty six old yet, and they're very good actually in the learning. Um, but uh, yeah, twenty six years in in the fire EMS side, and as a paramedic, going to my seventeenth year, going eighteen something like that, and would not change it one bit. Never. I, I love what I do. It's a passion. It's a calling, really. It really is a calling. I like, uh, you know, being with patients, their family members, my partners. I like seeing them grow as well, learning from experience, looking for out for each other. I like teaching. I love teaching because um, you develop in the, in the future out there. So, healthcare and EMS side and fire side will be always be around. But we just have to be able to be adaptive to changes. Yeah. It's not what it was 20 years ago. Absolutely not. I've seen so many changes. You've seen so many changes. Mm-hmm. The last 10, 15 years in, in patient treatment, protocols, uh, science changes, you know, research. 
technology. Technology is a big thing. Technology now. I mean, just tele, tele teleconferences, tele mm -hmm. televideos, telemedicine. Telemedicine, yeah. I mean, everything is accessible in your palm, of your hand, with a phone. So that's the new wave for the last few years. And I can't understand how if this occurred 25 years ago, I don't know how people would be able to, to manage. Yeah, to, without managing this. Yeah. But it's very difficult. I mean, but it's it's a it's a passion. It's definitely a passion. Well, Jose, I want to thank you for uh, taking this moment to uh, sit down and have a coffee with me. Oh, great. So always, yeah. always. Coffee is my, my <laughs> thing. All the way from my grandfather. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. another discussion <laughs> I think uh, we will have in an, another season when we talk about, uh, you know, the coffee farms. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm looking forward for that talk. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, definitely there's something we want to share later on in our podcast about what it's like uh, to grow up on a coffee farm and where you see coffee now, especially in New York City. So definitely we'll have Jose back. and uh, We'll be back. Yep. We have plenty to talk about in the, this world of ours. So thank you all for listening and thank you again, Jose, for You're uh, welcome. taking the moment, having coffee and uh, discussing your experience with us. My pleasure. And everyone be safe out there. I'm always available. Thank Ciao. you. Thank you for listening to episode two of the Coffee Chronicles. We're very fortunate here at Black Six Coffee to have met different people with interesting stories and us ourselves get to experience it along with them. So we hope you follow us on future episodes. To help support us, please uh, donate to black6project.org, our 501c3 nonprofit. Or you can order a coffee at black6coffee.org and purchase coffee from the different countries we've done humanitarian work in. Thank you.